How's everybody doing? How's everybody doing? Come on, how you all doing this morning? Good to see everybody. Also good to, well I can't see you, but I want to say good morning to all of you who are joining us online. And um, before we get into the word this morning, I have a confession to make. And, and I feel really bad about it. And on the way to church this morning, I killed a squirrel. I know, I, I, I don't want to make fun of that, but I, I feel bad. It's like, you know, it's, it's what we're getting close to fall, and so they're all kind of like gathering nuts. And I was driving down my street, and I kid you not, there was probably about 20 squirrels that just ran out of nowhere. And I had to like dodge and do all this. And unfortunately, I, I, I ran over one of them. So, so I, I think I need to get born again again this, this morning here. But um, anywho, anywho, I, I feel bad. I just want to kind of get that off. I, I, I don't like it when anything dies. Really, I feel bad when I have to kill a cockroach, let alone running over a squirrel. So, so just cleanse, cleansing. Just want to get that off my chest here this morning. But um, in all seriousness, um, good to see everybody. And before we get into the word here this morning, just want to uh, remind you guys, I mean, we have some more people here this morning, so that's great. Good to see everybody's faces. But just want to encourage everybody to register, to go online and register before the services. Um, that really helps us to be able to know how to handle all the social distancing and to get ready for the services uh, with where we're at right now. And also, I also want to encourage you to do this. Um, we're hoping to continue on and being able to meet, but one of the things that's really going to help us to continue to meet in person is to make sure that we have enough volunteers for each service. So I want to encourage you to pray about it. Um, if you're not serving in any capacity right now in church, or if you are, one of the things that we really need uh, to be able to continue to meet in person is to have greeters and to also have a team to help sanitize and you know, clean everything up after the service. And um, you know, hey, being a greeter, you, you don't really need any experience necessary other than to smile, but you're gonna be wearing a mask, so you don't even have to smile. You, you can just be happy, just look happy tell. with your eye. What was that? We can tell. We can tell, that's right, you can tell. So it's a very easy job, you, you know, you can do it one Sunday a month, and then if you don't want to greet, again, you can help us clean up and sanitize uh, after the service. So I just want to encourage you guys to pray about it. You can go to our website at gatecityvineyard.com to find out more information. There's also uh, links to where you can sign up for the different services and stuff with that. So again, good to see everybody. Good morning to all of you online. And we're going to go ahead and get into the message this morning. And uh, we're going to move right along with our series on the book of Revelation. And last week we came to our section in the book of Revelation that is commonly referred to as the seven letters to the seven churches. And let's not forget that the book of Revelation, it was written by the Apostle John. And John's original audience was to seven historical churches uh, that were in existence uh, during the latter part of the first century. They were located in what is now modern day Turkey. Uh, seven churches that were about to face very intense and horrible persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire because they would not worship Caesar as Lord or as God. Why? Because they knew that Jesus is the only true Lord and Jesus is the only true God. So they would not bow down to Caesar and they that got them into a lot of trouble. Now, speaking of Jesus... 
If you know in this section, if you turn to this section in your Bible, you will notice that the letters are written in red, indicating that the message given to these seven churches were the very words of Jesus himself. And while, yes, the letter was written by the Apostle John, we are told that the words of Jesus were delivered to John by way of angelic beings. Each one of these churches had an angelic being that oversaw, that ministered to them. And so Jesus delivers his message through these angels to the Apostle John, and then John, in turn, writes down the message for each of these churches, then he sends each respective letter to each respective church and the message that Jesus had for them. And um, last week, we began looking at the church in Ephesus, and we're going to wrap that up uh, this week by looking more at the church in Ephesus. And I'll go ahead and let you guys know in this series, we're not going to look at all seven churches. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the church in Philadelphia, and then the week after that, we're going to look at the church in Laodicea. So again, this morning, we're going to finish up uh, with the book of, or with the church in Ephesus. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to go back to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 and 7. You can do that at home. If you didn't bring your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen. So here we go. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, the seven golden lampstands, we talked about that last week. The lampstands are symbolic for the churches. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Do I not have the next portion of scripture? There we go. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as we look at your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you here. We know that you're already here, but we just want to say that you're welcome. And as we consider your word, we pray that you would open our hearts uh, to you. And then as we engage your word, this, these are the very words of Jesus speaking not only to the church in Ephesus, but also speaking to us 2,000 years later here today. So Holy Spirit, we give you our hearts, we give you our minds, we give you our lives, and we ask that you would help us to engage you through your word. And as we engage your word and engage you through it, that you would transform us more and more into the image and likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, as I mentioned last week, a majority of these churches in these letters, uh, they, they contain commendations or, or praises from Jesus as well as, as corrections or, or critiques. And there are actually two of these churches throughout the seven that they get no critiques whatsoever. They only get praises. They, they only get commendations. We're going to look at one of those churches next week, which is the church in Philadelphia. And then there's one church, they don't get any props or praise from Jesus at all. All they get is correction and critique. And that is the church of David, I know you know. 
Laodicea. That's right. So we're going to look at that church in a couple of weeks. But here in the church in Ephesus, they receive both commendations or praise from Jesus as well as correction and critique. And so we're going to start with the good news first. Why? Because that's what Jesus starts with. Jesus starts with this church. He starts with the commendations. He starts by giving them props and praise. And so he first begins to commend them because of their patient endurance and also because of their toil. And that word for toil in the Greek, it, it literally means that you have worked so hard. Or as my grandmother used to say when people would work hard and see what happened afterwards, she would say, you are just plum tuckered out. Yeah. Plum tuckered out. If you're watching from home, how about typing in, I can't help you to spell it, you're on your own on this, but type in, they were plum tuckered out. They had worked so hard that they were plum tuckered out. This was a hardworking, energetic kind of church. People in their neighborhood would have looked at them and said, man, these folks are some good Christian people because look at how busy they are. They're working really hard. I mean, this is the kind of church that you would have no problems finding volunteers. You wouldn't have any problem finding people to work in the nursery or to greet or to sign up to be a cleaner uh, for the services out there. You, this church, again, they were gung-ho to serve. They were gung-ho to volunteer. They were gung-ho for outreach. And, and they would have been happy to do so. And so Jesus sees their hard work. Jesus sees their efforts. Jesus sees them becoming plum-tuckered out for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus said, great, great job. I commend you for your hard work. I commend you for your effort. And folks, this is important. Let me, let me just stop here for a moment. This is, this is important. We need to know this. And, and that is this. It, for those of you who volunteer and serve in some sort of ministry or in some sort of capacity here, and, and hey, I know because of COVID, there's certain ministries that we've had to press the pause button on for a little bit. But whether you realize it or not, that whenever you serve in whatever capacity it is that you serve in the church, and if nobody else, if not a single person ever takes notice of your service and your hard work and your effort, you know who does? Jesus. Jesus sees what you do. He sees that hard work. He sees that sacrifice and that effort. You know, again, I, I know right now we're not, we're, we're having our kids in our service with us during the service. We're, we're not having our V kids or children's ministry right now. But if you are a volunteer with the kids, whether you're here this morning or you're watching online, when you are back there on Sunday mornings and, and nobody out here sees what you're doing, that hard work and that sacrifice, that giving of yourself to the young people in our church, Jesus sees what you do. That person that you visit in the hospital who's sick, that person that you go to their house when they're sick and, and you pray for them, that person that you make a meal for, that family that you prepare a meal for that nobody else sees, guess who sees you doing that? Jesus. Jesus sees it. Jesus knows 
That, that bag of grocery that you pack and give away every week to people that need food, Jesus sees that. That bulletin that you hand out every Sunday, well, well not now, but that mask, that mask that you hand out every Sunday, yes, that's right, back there, Mary Ellen, guess who saw you this morning? Jesus saw you this morning. For those of you who help clean up after the service, whatever it is, how, whatever capacity that you serve in regards to the church here this morning, Jesus sees what it is that you do. And Jesus says, I am pleased. Good job. And folks, remember this. Here's another thing that's important to keep in mind. Whatever it is that we do when we serve in this church, yes, we do it to serve each other, but ultimately, folks, the person that you are serving the most is Jesus. Whatever it is that you do. Jesus says, you know, the same way that he said to them in the Ephesian church, he says, good job, great. So he commends them for their hard work and, and for their dedication and for their efforts and their sacrifice. That's the first thing that Jesus praises them for. And then the second thing that Jesus gives them commendation and praise for is because of their orthodoxy. And we see this in a couple of different ways. We see this, first of all, in verse 2, and then we see this also in verse 6. So if you would, put up that next, that next slide. Here's what he says. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He goes on. Yet this you have, this is verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also Hate. Oh my goodness, Jesus said it isn't so. Jesus actually hates something. I mean, is that true? Does, does Jesus really hate certain things? Yes, he does. Jesus, who is full of, of grace and truth and mercy and love, also hates certain things. Things. Folks, that's not just in my Bible, that's also in your Bible too. Amen. And we just read this. And folks, when I think about this, especially what I've seen transpire over probably the past decade or so, is that when it comes to thinking about Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus is like, if I could kind of give you a picture idea, a visual of what I think a lot of people when they think of Jesus, and this is all that he's like, it would be like this. Yeah. That, that Jesus is just some type of like buddy Christ, nice guy, you know, he, he's the kind of guy that, you know, would entertain the kids in the neighborhood so that, you know, entertain your kids, babysit them so that you know, you could go and pick up a few groceries at, at, at Harris Teeter. And, and folks, don't, don't get me wrong. I believe Jesus is the kind of person that would enjoy 
a fun time, a fun game of soccer with, with you and your kids, or, or whatever it is that you enjoy doing. Jesus certainly is not some old crotchety fuddy-duddy who, who is anti-fun, nor is Jesus mean. But after getting to know Jesus for some 30 years or close to 30 years and after reading about him in the scriptures, nice is not the first word that I would use to describe Jesus. Yes, Jesus was kind. Yes, Jesus was compassionate. Yes, Jesus was and is merciful. Yes, Jesus is caring and loving. But he was also unwavering and unbending when it came to standing up for truth and standing up against what is evil. So much so that it cost him his life. You know, throughout the book of Revelation, we're, we're going to see Jesus revealed as the sacrificial lamb. But even more so than that, we're going to see Jesus revealed as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Dorothy Sayers, who is a personal friend of C.S. Lewis, I like what she had to say about how we falsely sometimes try to sanitize the person of Jesus Christ and tame him. Here's what she said. The people who hanged Christ never to do them justice accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. She goes on. We have efficiently paired the claws of the line of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Folks, yes, Jesus is loving. But the fact that Jesus is loving, that also means that he sometimes hates certain things. By way of example, I love, love, so much love my eight-year-old daughter. But folks, if she grew up to stick a needle in her arm, and became a heroin addict, I would hate that. If my daughter grew up to judge and mistreat people because of the color of their skin, I would hate that. If my daughter grew up to think that sex is just no big deal, I can sleep around and sleep with whoever I want to, whenever it is that I want to, I, outside of marriage, and just, you know, I'm just going to do what I want. If she were to do such things, I would hate such things. Why? Because I love her. I don't hate her. I hate the things that she would be doing. And the reason why I would hate the things that she would be doing is because not only would such things be destructive for the other people, it would also be destructive for her. Amen. Love sometimes hates. Not the person, 
but the activities that are evil or that are wrong or that are destructive. And so we're told in this passage that Jesus hates the works in the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we're going to come back to them here in just a few moments. But again, notice again what Jesus commends. Jesus says to the Ephesian church, you know, he says, listen, I applaud you. Your discernment is all 2020. You all have 2020 discernment. You can sniff out false teachers, false apostles, false doctrines, false theology faster than anyone else. You guys are like a bunch of bloodhounds when it comes to sniffing all that stuff out. No one can pull the wool over your eyes in such matters. You, you never compromise. You don't. You hate what is evil, the same things that I do. You, you know, you, you call evil for what it is. You don't give an inch. You stand up for the truth. You don't compromise the truth. You stand up for what is right. And Jesus says, bravo, 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 good job. You keep that up. And this is connected to their orthodoxy and their stance against the Nicolaitans. And I know some of you are thinking, who are the Nicolaitans? You know, when I first started reading the book of Revelation, and when I would hear the word Nicolaitans, I, I know you guys probably don't have this picture image because you guys are as goofy as I am. But whenever I think, when I hear the word Nicolaitans, I think of someone doing one of those <laughs> You know, that kind of wicked, kind of evil, <laughs> I'm a Nicolaitan. I know, it's goofy, but that's what I think of when I think of this word and who they were. So who were these Nicolaitans, and why did Jesus, you know, hate what it was that they were doing so much? Now, I'll go ahead and let you know, we, we can't say for certain who these Nicolaitans were. But most scholars seem to think that the Nicolaitans formed around a man by the name of Nicholas. Nicholas. That's right, Nicholas. And you can read about this person, this man, in Galatians, or not Galatians, but in Acts chapter 6. I'm not going to turn there. But this man by the name of Nicholas, he, he appears to convert to Christianity. He, he appears to be a, a genuine person of faith. But along with the teachings of Christianity, along with the pure teachings of Christianity, he, he begins to you know, be influenced what's known as Gnosticism. And so he starts to take a little bit of Gnostic thought, which was considered a heresy by the church back then and still today. So he started to take what the Gnostics taught and mix that up with Christianity. And then he looked at the different pagan gods and goddesses and the pagan religions that are around during that day. And so he started to take a little bit of that too their theology and, and their ideology. And so he began to mix it up. And he began to have a group of people that gathered around his teachings, his ideologies, and his influence. And they began to infiltrate the early church. And so they would drag a lot of these Christians into these false beliefs and these false doctrines that, that Nicholas you know, came up with and then later on the Nicolaitans who followed his teaching after he died. And most scholars will tell you that, that, that the primary hook in their teaching 
The, the, the primary hook that, that tempted and deceived and therefore led certain Christians, a lot of Christians astray, were centered around the grace of God. They took the grace of God and, and they perverted it. And they would say things like, hey, Jesus died for you. You are forgiven. And because of that, you can do whatever you want. I can do what I want. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want to do because of God's grace. Hey, God's grace covers me. Jesus has forgiven me. But you know what? Some of these other pagan gods and some of these other pagan goddesses, they have some really nice things to say as well. And so I think I'm going to take a little bit of what they have to say, their influence, their rationality, their theology, and I'm going to mix it up with the theology and the doctrine and the beliefs of Christianity. And you know what? Since Jesus is such a nice guy and he's so full of grace, you know, occasionally I may go into one of these pagan temples and worship them as well. Oh, my goodness. Hey, Jesus forgives you. You're free, and oh my goodness, this pagan culture that we're in, they're so free, they're so open in regards to sex, so, oh, it's so hard to stay pure and chaste, but then again, God's grace is good, it's okay, so I can just sleep around and do whatever it is that I want to do, and guess what, folks, you in the Ephesian church, church, you can do the same thing, too. See, there, there was a perversion of God's grace. And folks, listen, don't, don't misunderstand me. God's grace keeps us. God's grace protects us and hymns us in. But scripture is very clear. God's grace is not a license for you and I to do whatever we want to do. But rather, it's there to hold us and to protect us when we do blow it. And it's also there to help empower us to grow and to transform and to change, not to abuse it, not to treat it as a mockery. And that's what the Nicolaitans were, were doing here. And, and, you know, maybe the writer of Jude, I, I don't have this, I forgot to put this in there. But I, I, I wouldn't doubt that the writer of Jude was thinking of the Nicolaitans when he wrote this. Jude chapter 4 verse 1 where he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Again, they perverted the grace of God. Well, folks, let me say this before I move on. If we're all honest with each other, we would all have to confess. We all struggle. We all have temptation. Right? And sometimes we give in to that temptation and we sin. We still have flesh that we struggle with. That with God's help, with Jesus' help, we're called to crucify on a daily basis and to take up our cross. So there's a battle, there's a struggle, and sometimes we give in to that battle and we sin. And if we're honest, sometimes we willfully sin. We know what we're doing, and we just go ahead and do it anyway. But hopefully what happens, even when we willfully sin or we give in in a moment of weakness, 
hopefully we come to that place of clarity to where we go, oh, God, Jesus, what was I thinking? Oh, Jesus, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Jesus, you know what? I acted so silly. I, I, you know, I just, I was acting so stupid. Would you forgive me? Would you come in? Would you give me your grace? Would you give me your mercy to help empower, to change me? and to grow in that area. And scripture is very clear when our heart is open and soft towards Jesus, even when we blow it, Jesus is there. His grace covers us and his grace says, get up, try it again. We're going to do it again. We're going to keep doing it until you get it right. But folks, this is not what was happening with the Nicolaitans. Again, they were flaunting and making a mockery out of God's grace. And there was a hardness of heart. There was an ongoing, intentional, willful action to, to you know, deceive and to pervert those who were in the church. And to lead them astray into this false teaching, into this false doctrine, and, and to turn God's grace into a mockery, hence the strong words from Jesus about this. Jesus didn't hate the Nicolaitans. He hated what it was that they were teaching and trying to influence other people into following them into. And so again, the Ephesians, they, they knew they were discerning and they, they said, look, we're not tolerating that. We're not, that's not getting in that theology. That's not getting into our church because we see where that leads and that's destructive towards people. Uh-uh, no way, no how. That's not happening. And Jesus says, good job. Good job. Good job. Now, folks, with that in mind, let me say this. There's never an excuse for bad theology and bad doctrine. There's never an excuse for that. And I know over the years I've had people say whenever the, the, the conversation or the discussion of doctrine in theology comes up, I've had people say, listen, Todd, don't give me none of that theology mumbo-jumbo. I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. Just give me Jesus. All I need is Jesus. Whenever someone has said that to me, I will typically respond with, I agree with you 100%. You are correct. All you need is Jesus. Jesus is all you need. But then again, Fred, let me ask you a question. Who is Jesus? What was the main mission of Jesus? Why did Jesus come to planet Earth? What does Jesus expect for you? What does he desire for you in your life? And folks, once you and I begin to contemplate and try to answer such questions, which we should, guess what? We have now just moved over into the realm of theology and doctrine. And how you answer such questions and what you believe about such answers will not only affect your life in the here and now, but it will also affect your life for all eternity.
Sound doctrine and sound theology is critical for the Christian believer. But folks, there are times when sound doctrine and sound theology aren't enough. And we see that in this passage. Now, don't misunderstand me. As Jesus followers, we, we, we are not called to be theologically laxed or indifferent to the truth or quick to compromise. No, Jesus calls us to move and to grow in orthodoxy in our beliefs and, and to grow and to have accurate theological convictions and ethical morality that's consistent with the revelation of God throughout the scriptures. And I say that because of what comes next and what we're gonna see and what comes next and what is that? That is Jesus's critique to the church in Ephesus. So if you wanna put that next slide up, here's what he says. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So again, Jesus says to them, listen, I am so thrilled. I am so ecstatic about your work and your toil and your effort and your patient endurance. I am so glad that you don't tolerate evil and your commitment to orthodox teaching and, and sound and good theology, but I have this against you. Folks, can you imagine sitting in the Ephesian church when this letter was first read? And then you hear, oh, Jesus has something against us. So again, Jesus says to them, you're doing amazing things, but, but I have this against you. And that is, some of you have allowed your love for others and your love for me to become squelched. It's cooled down. Now, there's a big debate over exactly what is meant by this, this love. Most of you and most of us were probably brought up to believe, and rightfully so, that you know, the love that is being spoken of here is talking about our love for Jesus. But the question is, what does Jesus mean by first? Right? As we just said, and you know, we just read here, and this is the ESV version that I'm reading from. Jesus says, you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Me meaning that, that that love that you had, you, you had back then, back when, you had back over here. It, it's a time reference. It's a chronological you know, kind of order. So you had this love when you first became believers. And some will say, well, listen, the word first here, it, it means 
preeminence. It means the most important. And so obviously the first there, it's referring to the first law of which he's talking about Jesus. And then others will say, no, no, no. What's being talked about here is, is the love that they had for each other in the church and the love for other people. And you may say, well, Todd, which is it? Is, 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 is it talking about our love for Jesus or is it talking about our love for one another? I'll be honest with you, folks. I don't think we have to choose. I think both are correct. And the reason for that is because when you look at other portions of Scripture, it's very clear. One of the primary ways that you and I show our love for God is by showing our love for others. The two go hand in hand. Again, remember Jesus said, you know, what, what's, what's the great and the most important commandment? Yes, you're going to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. But there's another one that you can't get away that's connected to that one. And that is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, folks, I don't think we have to choose. I think both are correct. And, and here's what I think was going on. Here's what was going on in this church in regards to, you know, the correction. And folks, as Christians, we want to be grounded in right thinking, right doctrine, and right theological beliefs. But there is a danger in that. And the danger is this. Is that in such a, a climate, you, you can create a climate to where you begin to question the commitment to Jesus of someone else because they don't think or agree with you on certain things. You have a difference of opinion on things. And, and it can become dangerous because you can start thinking, well, listen, I'm correct and you're wrong. You're wrong because you don't think like me. Or we're not seeing completely eye to eye on everything. And folks, I'm not talking about core Christian beliefs, and that's not what's being said here. It's not talking about, you know, core beliefs about or doctrine about Jesus' divinity or salvation by grace through faith or the bodily resurrection. It's not talking about fundamental primary issues or doctrines or beliefs in the Christian faith. This is talking about secondary issues. Secondary issues that as believers and Christians, we can respectfully debate and, and have lively dialogue with each other. But these secondary issues, they have absolutely nothing to do with whether or not someone goes to heaven when they die. They're not core issues. And folks, I think we all know, we've all seen examples of churches to where they divide over secondary issues. And they have people that are sort of like the doctrine police. You, you, don't, you don't believe like I do. You, you're just not seeing eye to eye on this with me. And so what they do is they'll have a tendency to judge or look down. And, and as a result, churches begin to divide. And folks, that's dangerous. And that's what I meant by saying that sound theology and sound doctrine isn't always enough. If sound doctrine and sound theology crushes our love for one another, that's not good. That's not the intention. 
You know, here at Gate City Vineyard, my heart has always been and desired to follow along with what St. Augustine said a long time ago to where he said, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. So as I close this morning, as the worship team comes back up, let me ask you a question here this morning. Is there anybody in your life that your love for them has cooled, been dampened, maybe because you and they don't completely see eye to eye on everything. And, and as a result, you, you know, gosh, I, I so love this person, but now we just, I, we don't agree on this. And so I, it's just, I, just you know, my love's just kind of dampened. Cooled off. Or maybe your love for Jesus has cooled off a little bit. Man, when I first became a Christian, or, or even you know, up until a year ago, or however long ago, I, I was so in love with Jesus, but now it's just my affections and, and my emotions and just I, it's, it's just cooled and it dampened a little bit. And folks, let's be honest. Since March, we've had a lot of things in this crazy mixed up world that can challenge us in regards to our love for one another and challenge us in regards to our love for God. And cause it to be dampened and, and, and cause it to be cooled. But Jesus, just like the church in Ephesus, he gives them a, a remedy towards that, a remedy towards stoking their love, not only for one another, but also stoking their love for him. Jesus tells him three things. First of all, he says, remember. He says, remember from the height that you had fallen. Remember that time that when you were love, you were loving towards this person, you were full of goodwill and you were full of charity and, and grace and, and your love was just, it was healthy, it was good. And, and do, do you remember that? Do you remember when your love for me was, was exciting? So the, the first thing, the first thing that Jesus tells us to do is to remember. So the first thing that you and I need to do this morning, if there's some issue, if we've let our cool or, the, or let our love for someone, for someone cool, Jesus tells us to remember. Take note. Remember what it was like when love was present. And folks, remember something really important here. I, 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 was, I had a conversation this week. I reconnected with my former first pastor. And we were talking and we were laughing. You know, I've, I've shared about my first church and how you guys have seen pictures. I had wild and crazy hair. And, and this was a Pentecostal church. And, and I obviously didn't fit in. And I thought all these people were crazy. And I remember going into his office and saying, man, I, I don't like these people. They're just crazy. They, I, I just don't get them. We don't have anything in common. And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, Todd, you don't have to like them. You have to love them. Love and like are two different things, folks. You don't have to like or agree with everything from everybody in order to love them and to extend goodwill and to wish and to work and to pray for the best and what's good for them. 
not about feelings. I know it can be hard, but the fact that it's not based upon feelings makes it possible. But at the same time, think about it this morning. Is there anybody in your life to where, you know, the love has cooled, and, and can you remember what the relationship consisted of when love was, was there, that love was, was, was in place? The same thing for Jesus. And then Jesus says, secondly, repent. And what repent means is stop. Stop it. Stop it and do a U-turn. Instead of continuing down the path that you're doing, stop and turn back around and head back towards Jesus and head back towards what is right. And then Jesus thirdly says, do. Do the works that you did at first. Remember Heavenly Father, I pray this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are God who is so full of grace, so full of mercy, love and compassion. And Father, you understand. You know, as our shepherd and, and, and we as your, your little lambs, it's so easy to wander off want to do our own thing and to go our own way. And when we do that, you don't condemn us. Your word tells us that, that, that when one of the, the 99 goes away, the good shepherd goes after that one and leaves the flock. And Father, you understand with everything that has happened in the world over the past several months, whether world has gone crazy. You understand. You know how hard that can be for us. You see all of the, the, the disunity and just anger in the world. And, and even as your people, it can be hard for us to, to, to remain and to contain our love for our neighbor and our love for each other and our love for you stoked and, and, and burning hot. So there's no condemnation for anybody here this morning. You're not condemned. When Jesus brings a correction or a critique, it's not to condemn, it's to encourage, it's to help us to grow. So Father, we confess here this morning, it has been a challenge to love people and what has transpired in our world over the past several months. And Father, we pray we say, Jesus, we can't. We can't love the way that you call us to love without you. So, Father, we just open up our space. We just ask that you would soften our hearts and just show us in those areas to where you can fill us with your love for those that we come in contact with in our homes, in our churches, in our work, in our neighborhoods. Father, we want to be known as loving people. Yes, we want to be hardworking people, people who serve and sacrifice for the gospel. Yes, we want to seek after, you know, doctrinal purity and, and theological, you know, health. And, and we want to do those things, but, Father, not at the expense of loving other people and at the expense of loving you. So, Father, I just pray right now as we, as we sing this last song. 
Holy Spirit, would you come and would you stoke our hearts? Would you stoke that fire, that burning fire of your love to where as we first receive your love, give us a glimpse of your greatness and how good you are and how much you love us and how much you care for us. And as we get a glimpse of you and as we experience and get a taste of your love, Father, would you just open our hearts up even more so and give us passion and give us a broken heart for the people that you call us around and to be amongst and to love them in the way that you call us to do so. We are your church. We are your people. And Jesus, we give you our hearts here this morning. Help us to remember. Give us a taste of Again, if we're, if we're dry in our love for you and are dry in our love for others, give us a taste and a vision of when our, our hearts were burning hard for you and burning hard for people that are created in your image. We just say how great you are this morning, how great your love is, how great your mercy is, how great your grace is. Holy Spirit, pour out such things on us right now and also if we're watching at home. And Lord, we love you and we thank you and we pray and we ask these things in the name of your beloved son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, let's worship folks.